Welcome everyone to Connected Sociology's online curriculum. My name is Dr. John Narayan and I'll be taking you through the history and the kind of emergence of British black power. Now, British black power is its less studied, less famous uh, cousin of its US counterpart, but in many ways holds many distinct lessons in history for anti-racism today. In fact, we could argue that it's the kind of start of modern anti-racism in Britain. And what I'm going to do for you over the next um, 20 minutes or so is just take you and guide you through the emergence of British black power, its objectives, its kind of goals. Um, we'll encounter some of the characters in British black power. And then we'll end briefly with a kind of reflection on the legacy of British black power for those of us today committed to the causes of anti-racism. All right, so the UK's emergent black power, um, we call it regime or um, ideas of black power in the UK really start in the mid 1960s, actually predating Stoically Carmichael's call in the US. Um, and this was largely framed around three main things that were happening in Britain at the time. One was new Commonwealth immigration, which saw settlement from Asia, Africa and the Caribbean of British citizens back onto the mainland of the UK, largely in response to labor shortages in the UK following uh, the war and the economic um, the economic regrouping of Britain, but also following the kind of draconian forms of immigration control that were actually happening in the US. So for many people in the Caribbean, the US in the 1950s was actually a better destination for them because it was closer. But as the US changed its immigration laws, um, people started to turn back towards what we call the motherland. From that forms of immigration, you get forms of racial discrimination in mainland Britain because Britain is finally brought face to face with its colonial subjects, right? Now called its British subjects, who hold the right to kind of move around what that is that point, the British Empire. And these citizens um, face racial discrimination in, in the immigration laws that allow them in and out of the country, employment, education, housing, and that goody but oldie police brutality. By the latter point of the 60s, there was the emergence of something called Powellism, uh, led by Enoch Powell, who basically argued that non-white citizens, what were called coloured citizens, were essentially second-class citizens in Britain. In fact, they weren't even British. So informed by that US movement, um, but also by anti-colonial activism, the emergence of third-worldism, so the idea that countries like India, like um, China, like large the Caribbean states forming going forwards to independence, places like Ghana, they were now independent countries that were moving towards trying to change the global order. And British black power took all of those influences from the US, from the third world, and its kind of domestic problems of racism and came up with its own formulation of what black power meant. So black power in the UK really starts in the mid 60s. Stokely Carmichael actually visits in 1967. This leads to the kind of emergence of lots of different groups. Um, most famously, the first kind of real black power group in Britain is called the Racial Adjustment Action Society, led by someone called Michael X, who models himself on, on Malcolm X. He has a very interesting and troubled life, which ends in the Caribbean and him being executed. So maybe you'll read up on some of that after this. 
and he forms uh, the Racial Adjustment Action Society, which is known as RAS, right? And what's happening here in the mid 60s is actually a reaction to Britain's own attempt to create formal and legal equality for its new Commonwealth migrants. So as um, the colored migrants, as they were called, came to Britain from, from the kind of late 50s onwards, you, you have forms of racial discrimination and the state, the British state actually does two things. It starts to regulate immigration through immigration acts. So you have 1962, 1968 and 1971 immigration acts, which are essentially about limiting non-white immigration into Britain. Um, and you also have the state saying that it will liberally cover, deal with racism at home. So the Race Relations Acts of 1965. And what this really is, is they attempt to kind of formally, le legally ban racial discrimination. Of course, much like the formal legal equality given in the US, although around different issues, um, this doesn't work. So by the mid 60s onwards, uh, African Car Caribbean communities, the African community, the Asian community are still suffering uh, large swathes of racist violence. And what you get is the emergence of these black power groups in response to the failures of the British state to provide the economic, social and political forms of justice, just like um, the US counterparts, their US counterparts. Black power in Britain is really about the failure to secure economic and social justice for it for non-white citizens. All right, so what were some of the groups? Let's go around and let's look at some of the groups that emerged. I just wanna give you a few names. These are all London-based groups, but in a sense, they did stretch across the country and there was a kind of national um, sway of black power groups um, in various big urban centers where there were non-white populations. So you'll, if you go and look at the archives, you'll see that there were black power groups across uh, London, Birmingham, bits of Bristol, Liverpool, Manchester, Huddersfield, Wolverhampton, Nottingham, lot groups in these places. Now, these, these groups didn't really number a lot of people, but what they were able to do, whilst the groups were in their tens, they were often able to mobilize hundreds and thousands of people. And the kind of most famous black power groups in the UK, which some of you may have heard of, but if you haven't, don't worry, we can, we can educate you on that stuff are the United Colored People's Association, which ran from 1967 to 1970, the Black Unity and Freedom Party, which ran from the 1970s all the way to the 90s, the Black Panther Movement, which many of you may have heard of, which ran from 1968 to 1973. After 73, it renamed itself the Black Workers Movement, and the Black Liberation Front, which were, began in 1971. And there were other groups you may have heard of, like Darkest House, Black Eagles, the Brixton Black Women's Group, which emerged, um, through the Black Power Movement. Um, after the Black Power Movement, you have the Organization for Women of African and Asian Descent. You also had groups that were not Black Power groups per se, but that were definitely linked with these groups, like the Indian Workers Association in Birmingham. And of course, institutions like the Institute of Race Relations, which were key uh, partners with Black Power groups throughout the late 60s and 70s. So what was British Black Power really about? What was it, what was it doing? Well, in, in some ways it did mimic its US counterpart. It ran ideas of black is beautiful. It ran on ideas of black as self-determination in education and housing. It did look at black self-defense. 
So trying to take on police brutality and racist, racist kind of domestic racist abuse. And of course, it looked to give communities control. And those are kind of elements that you'll find in most black power groups in the US. But in the UK, there was a slightly different um, take on what black meant, right? Most of the uh, black power groups in Britain were what we call politically black now. Um, of course, at that time, they didn't call it that. What All that meant was is that black in, in Britain and its black power groups was taken largely to mean all non-white groups which had come through um, new Commonwealth immigration. This was the Afro-Caribbean community, the African community, the Asian community, and even in some of the documents, the Latin American community. And these were all taken to be um, black subjects. And what this did was it didn't override one's ethnic identity or histories. It simply brought these um, subjects together under a shared idea of colonial experience and a shared ideal of post-colonial experience. And although sh those shared ideals were not necessarily the same experiences. So for example, British black power groups would often campaign against police brutality towards um, the Afro-Caribbean community, but they'd also at the same time be campaigning against um, racist uh, attacks on the British Pakistani community, the British Bengali community. And they were essentially bringing these subjects together under the idea of being anti-racist. And much like its US counterpart, given its kind of international history, British black power linked that fight against domestic racism um, against a wider goal of shaping or reshaping the world as we know it. So for most British black power groups, the objective was to fight off domestic racism, but that that fight against domestic racism was linked to uh, a critique of global capitalism, the racism that underpinned global capitalism, and the racism that also inflected um, what they would call often call the white left in places like the UK or the US. And this was the idea that um, non-white people, both in the UK and outside of the UK, were often not seen as the main agents of history. And British black power, following the kind of critiques established by people like Franz Fanon, but before him, uh, people like Claudia Jones and uh, W.E.B. Du Bois, George Padmore, C.L.R. James, took that the agency of non-white subjects, both outside the West and inside the West, was actually integral, was chief to the kind of rebalancing of the global economy, critiquing capitalism, and dare I say, even a communist horizon. So that's the kind of things that Black Power, British Black Power, how British Black Power merged, how it kind of had goals and objectives. And now I wanna kind of take you through to kind of one of the, some of the mercurial characters that you may come across, right? So British Black Power has a lot of names attached to it. You would have heard of uh, Darkus Howe, who was in a group called the Black Eagles and joined the Black Panther movement. He was the great nephew of the great theoretician, literature scholar, um, CLR James. Alfia Jones Leconte, who was the leader of the British Black Panther movement, um, one of the kind of key leaders of the British Black Power movement through the Panthers, and of course, a woman, which showed you that women were the kind of key integral part of the Black Power movement. 
Um, Lila Hassan, who would marry Darkus Howe and was part of what we call the Race Today Collective. And you might, um, there are also names you may not have heard of, like Varuk Dondi, who was Darkus Howe's um, right-hand man in the Panthers and later in Race Today. Uh, Marla Sen, who was a British Bengali lady um, who essentially went up and down the country uh, with the Panthers. You may never have heard of her, but there are murals of her in the East End now. Um, or someone like Sunit Chopra, who was a part of the British Black Panther movement, who came to study at SOAS, uh, was an Indian, and actually was part of the British Black Panther movement and went back to India and is now was once, I think he's retired or stepped down now, uh, one of the highest members of the Indian Communist Party. So there's a array of characters linked to the British Black Power movement. People like Neil Klenlock, whose photos have now become the kind of iconic snapshots of the era. What The kind of character I want to focus on, and I've been doing this a lot in talks I've been giving over the years, is, of course, someone called Olive Morris. Now, some of you may have heard of Olive Morris. Some of you may not have heard of Olive Morris. But Olive Morris was born in 1952 in Jamaica. She comes over to Britain when she's quite young, joins the British Black Panther youth movement, um, has a very infamous uh, altercation with a policeman over a Nigerian diplomat. But in many ways, she's emblematic of the kind of youth and um, energy of, of, of British Black Power. And why we would say that is she becomes a key activist in London and later Manchester, where she does her, her university study. She partakes in various forms of activism, direct action. But also, if you go to her archive in Lambeth, you'll see that there's an emerging um, theoretical mind behind this activism, what this activism means. And she comes to represent the kind of energy of British Black Power because even though she only lived until 1979 and she died at 27 at, uh, with the kind of effects of leukemia, her activism has left a mark across uh, London in terms of how you bring the community together, what you would fight over, how you link anti-racism with border control, how you link anti-racism and border control with a larger critique of global capitalism, and how you link that together with how you form solidarity between different communities, different non-white communities, but also how we forge links with uh, white communities who may who may necessarily feel that their cause is not with anti-racism due to the racism of elites. Okay, let's reflect finally on the legacy of British black power. And I want to kind of bring this into kind of contemporary debates around uh, anti-racism and how we should go about things. Just to give you the kind of preamble to what happens to British Black Power. British Black Power is very prominent from the late 60s to the early 70s. Many of you, um, if you were, if, if we were around at the time, would have actually been aware of the activities of these groups, the, mainly because they be, became quite famous. Um, John Berger quite famously gives his 1972 Booker Prize money to the British Black Panthers, right? And he, there's a newspaper cutting from The Guardian where he basically says, the reason I'm doing this is because the British Black Panthers represent the most radical um, group in Britain, 
which critiques capitalism, which critiques racism, and which critiques imperialism. And the exchange of that check, quite funnily, happens in a pub between Darkus Howe and Varuk Dondi over a drink. And apparently the check at one point goes missing, but then, then kind of turns back up. So British Black Power leads a kind of very charmed life from the late 60s until the early 1970s, but then the groups start to fall apart, um, largely because of internal tensions, but also because of external tensions. Um, the British state takes a, an interest in disturbing these groups. Some of you would have seen the, um, the show Guerrilla, which for all its problems of representation, focused on the, the kind of activities of the state against British black power groups. Sensationalized, but there's, there's an element of truth in it, like all, all good filmmaking. Um, and by the mid seventies, British black power groups have largely kind of fallen apart. But what happens is, is that their, their legacy of those groups starts to inform future groups. And so you get the emergent kind of, well, re-emergent forms of black feminism that come out of, of the black power groups, people like Olive Morris, um, Liz Obie, found the organization of African, uh, women of African and Asian descent. You have the kind of emergence of the Asian youth movement in the mid seventies, which will, which will take on British black power ideology and um, apply it to the kind of Asian experience in Britain. So still claiming the black subject, but very much about the kind of Asian youth communities across the North and not just London. So the Midlands, um, northern cities. So that legacy informs anti-racism as it goes ahead. But and you also find some of the theoretical ideas of British black power start to inform um, the work of some of the academics you may read. So if you read Policing the Crisis by Stuart Hall et al, um, you'll see that Stuart Hall thanks Darkus Howe in the acknowledgments. And that's largely because bits of the kind of idea that ra uh, race is the modality of class or that class is the medallion of race, um, can be found in, in the kind of work and publications of the British Black Power groups. Um, and if you read my article, which would be at the bottom of these, these videos, you'll, you'll, you'll see what I mean. But what's the legacy for today? Let's just look at that legacy today. We find ourselves in the middle of a kind of global revolt against uh, anti-Black racism, uh, revolts against border controls, which largely render brown and black people as disposable objects. The kind of re-emergence of a muscular xenophobic nationalism across bits of the global north. What does British black power have to say about that? Well, I think it has a number of things to kind of give us input. In. The first is the idea of solidarity. Now, as we've come to see terms like uh, the black subject, which was politically black, uh, terms like colored people, as forms of solidarity have largely been critiqued for the last 20 years. They've been shown to not be very good at showing the different experiences that different ethnic groups go through in say Britain or the US. And largely it's now unfashionable, in fact, kind of, it would be kind of blasphemous in one way to argue for an idea of political blackness that kind of underpinned the British black power movement. Whilst we may not want to kind of return to those terminologies, what we might want to do is reflect on the legacies of that, of the solidarities of the politically black era, which British black power was a part of. And what we find there is really 
not so much people um, eliding ethnic difference or homogenizing everyone, but rather the idea that the only way to deal with forms of racism, imperialism, and capitalist exploitation are largely to form elements of solidarity with other groups, that no one group can go alone, and that racism, imperialism, and capitalist exploitation are multifaceted. And those seem to be kind of good adages that we can take on. We can reject the terminology, but largely we have to focus on how anti-racism in Britain is linked to a global struggle. And that's really kind of powerful because that means that anti-racism in Britain really isn't just about putting uh, brown and black faces in high places, although it's a tragedy that places like Oxford and Cambridge don't have um, specifically enough black students. Um, we shouldn't see that as the kind of end goal of anti-racism. Anti-racism is about destroying the borders that kill off brown and black people. It's about the racism that kills rather than just the racism that discriminates, uh, in the words of Sivananda. And finally, I think the big legacy of British black power is always to remind us, as I've just kind of tried to point out, that the racism in Britain that we that we see on the streets is largely invented and created by the elites who govern this country, namely in the kind of ways of justifying social relations of exploitation. And they drive a wedge between groups who necessarily may see common cause with each other. Racism is integral to class in Britain. And that's something that British black power understood very, very well. And then finally, the biggest legacy that British black power gives then on the back of that is how it reframes what we think of left-wing politics. So just as we may not want to see anti-racism as just a kind of domestic tool, which, like I said, puts black and brown faces in high places, we want to see our anti-racism uh, push forward a, a progressive politics that seeks to liberate not just one-fifth of humanity, but all of humanity, in the words of Franz Fanon. So that's taking how domestic racism is linked to um, global commodity chains and the kind of global forms of exploitation that run across the globe. And some of you may have seen that um, this summer, in, in the middle of this crazy time of the pandemic, we've seen that Britain's racialized economy largely leads to really bad outcomes for swathes of black and brown working class people. And we might have, you might have read about the Boohoo factory in Leicester, where Asian women, but also Eastern European women, were being super exploited in order to produce garments that you and I, or maybe not you and I, some people out there would like to buy. And that is a great uh, kind of example of how racism and the ideas of disposability lead to super exploitation in places like Britain and, and Leicester's factories. But it also, in a kind of British black power kind of way, if we take if we took that analysis, we would push this further and we say, well, those forms of super exploitation in places like Leicester are actually um, very similar to forms of super exploitation that take place outside of the West, outside of the global North in places like Bangalore. Or we might want to, where Asian women are paid a pittance to create products that we buy. And so our focus on just domestic racism has to be linked to that internationalized form of racism, which is linked to 
capitalist class exploitation. And those would be the biggest lessons of the British Black Power Movement, that our forms of domestic anti-racism must be linked up to global forms of anti-racism and anti-capitalist exploitation so that we can all liberate each other rather than just little bits and parts of the globe.